Jesus' four three-quarter sermon is presented to the disciples in their response to their argument over who would be the greatest in God's kingdom. Now, their argument underscored an underlying sin issue. Actually, several sins. Selfishness, pride, arrogance, conceit. It also demonstrated that they did not understand that God's kingdom's values are different from the world's kingdom values. Consequently, Jesus rebukes them for their argument, and He identifies to them and to us five fundamental values that every kingdom citizen must embrace. We must embrace humility. We must embrace the value of guarding against sin. We must embrace the value of pursuing the lost. We must embrace the value of discipline, and we must value, or we must embrace the value of forgiveness. Now, in answer to their question, Jesus, you'll recall, set before them a toddler as the measure of greatness in God's kingdom. Recall that in the Jewish culture, a child held little importance and was not revered. And nonetheless, it is this child that Jesus sets before them as, the great, as an example of greatness in the kingdom. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to humble yourself as a child. And we know that a child, the word there, pedion, refers to a toddler. It is someone who is powerless, someone who is helpless, someone who is completely dependent upon someone else. And as that def- with that definition, we see now how a child, how a toddler, is a picture of humility. Greatness in the kingdom will only be achieved by us as we recognize our powerlessness, as we recognize our helplessness, as we recognize our total dependence upon our Father and commit to serving Him and others. And so Jesus sets forth humility as the first value to be recovered and embraced by kingdom citizens. Continuing to use the child as an illustration, Jesus refers to His followers as little ones, my cross. We're children. By referring to us as little ones, he regards each of us as his father's spiritual children. And since all believers, since all of us as believers are God's spiritual children, we are to treat one another the same way we would treat Jesus. Ergo, if we show love to one another, we are showing love to Jesus. Similarly, if we sin against one another, we are sinning against Jesus. And if we tempt one another to sin, we're ultimately tempting Jesus to sin. Any believer who urges another believer to sin must beware. Because here in the second value, Jesus sets forth that guarding against sin is a second value to be recovered and embraced. Because just as humility is necessary for maintaining harmonious relationships amongst one another, so is guarding against sin. When we cre- but, but when we sin, it creates bitterness, distrust, guilt, hostility, to name a few. And all of those things ultimately destroy our relationship with one another. 
So Jesus enunciates here in Matthew 18 that we need to guard ourselves from sin. But also we need to guard ourselves from causing others to sin. And therefore when we urge another to sin, when we ignore or tolerate someone's sin, when we provoke another to sin, when we set a poor example, when we misuse our Christian liberty, we are then guilty of causing another believer to stumble into sin. Jesus warns us that there is a fate worse than drowning reserved for those who directly or indirectly cause another believer to sin. And that that fate ought to behoove us to take whatever action is necessary to root out the causes of sin in our own life, but also to guard ourselves against causing someone else to sin. Most, if not all believers, all of us, if we were honest, have been guilty of, at some point or another of causing another believer to sin. Maybe not directly, but certainly indirectly. And such behavior ought not be the usual practice of genuine believers. And if and when we have caused another believer to stumble into sin, we ought to repent of that to God, and then we ought to go rescue that stumbling believer from their sin. Now I mentioned a moment ago that there is reserved for those who lead others into sin a fate worse than drowning. What fate is that? What fate does Jesus reserve for those who profess to be believers but cause other believers to sin? He says in the text of Matthew 18 that those who cause others to sin will be cast into eternal fire, also known as the fiery hell. We covered last week a discussion on this term. We're going to continue it for a moment this morning. The term translated here as hell is Gehenna, not Hades. Hell or Hades is the place of fiery torment where the souls of the unregenerate are imprisoned upon their death until the resurrection at the great white throne judgment. Gehenna, which is the Grecianized form of the Hebrew term Gehenam, refers to the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now that valley at the time of Christ was a maggot-infested, ever-burning garbage heap. And the Jews used it as a simile for the place of fiery eternal judgment. Gehenna then refers to the place we would call the lake of fire. The lake of fire. Now when someone dies without Christ as their Lord and Savior, their soul and body are separated. Their body returns to dust, ceases to exist. But their soul and spirit continues on. And as an unregenerate one, they go to hell. Hell is a place of torment, but it is not eternal. It is a prison awaiting a future judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 10.28 that we ought to fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in the lake of fire. You see, while one soul goes to hell, one soul and body will be cast into the lake of fire. You see, when the great white throne judgment happens, the souls of the unregenerate from Cain forward are going to be brought forth from hell, they are going to be given resurrected bodies, and they're going to be judged. As the Apostle John says in Revelation 20, 14 to 15, and anyone's name not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. 
What is the lake of fire? The lake of fire is a place of eternal fire where the unregenerate will be spiritually, physically, and mentally tormented forever. In Mark 9, 43-44, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into the lake of fire, into Gehenna, into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Folks, the fire of the lake of fire is not symbolic, it is real. In fact, the term fire there, pur, P-U-R, is the Greek word for physical fire. Everywhere it's used in the New Testament. This fire is unquenchable and its torment will be without end. Now how will someone be tormented? Well, first, the lake of fire is a place of spiritual torment. Jesus says in Matthew 8, 12, the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. Outer darkness is the darkness that is farthest away from the light. 1 John 1, 15 declares God is light and in Him is what? No darkness at all. In other words, to be in outer darkness, to be in the lake of fire, is to be as far from God as possible. You see, they'll see God at the great white throne. They will desire to be near God, but their desire will not be fulfilled. Instead, they will be separated from God, and that separation will cause them to be, term, to be tormented spiritually forever. The lake of fire is also a place of physical torment. Jesus says in Matthew eight twelve, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth demonstrate unconsolable physical torment. You see, when the unregenerate are resurrected at the great white throne and they're given new bodies, their bodies that they receive are imperishable. However, those bodies will not be a blessing. Their imperishable bodies will not be consumed in the fire. Instead, their imperishable bodies will endure the torment and they will be driven mad with unconsolable physical torment forever in the lake of fire. This lake of fire is not only an eternal fire, it's not only a place of uh, spiritual torment, it's not only a place of physical torment, it is a place of mental torment. Again, Jesus says in Mark 9, 44, that in the lake of fire their worm does not die. We noted that the personal pronoun there is attached to worm. The worm belongs to each and every person in the lake of fire. Reverend Plumtree once said, Well, nigh all Christian thinkers have seen in this gnawing worm the anguish of an endless remorse, the memory of past sins. You see, indeed, the unregenerate are not only going to be physically and spiritually tormented, they are going to be mentally tormented forever with the knowledge of all their sins. Indeed, it is a place of damnation. And the potential judgment of the lake of fire should cause every one of us to embrace the value of guarding against sin. It ought, to, it ought to behoove us to remove the causes of sin in our life. And it ought to move us to do nothing that might entice or tempt someone else to sin. However, simply guarding against sin is not enough. It is not enough. Instead of looking down on our fellow believers who are ensnared in sin... We have a responsibility to pursue them. To pursue them. Hence, Jesus presents here in Matthew 18, 10 to 14. 
the, va- the third value to be recovered and embraced. The value of pursuing the lost. The value of pursuing the lost. Now in Matthew 18 and verse 10, Jesus explains that first, God's children are not to be despised. God's children are not to be despised. Follow along as I read verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells us God's children are not to be despised. Now we need to understand this because this is going to be key to the second point, which is going to answer what this value of pursuing the lost is. Notice again, Jesus invokes the term little ones, macross, a synonym for little children, to which he's referring to all of us, all believers, as God's spiritual children. And he says, he begins by saying, see that. Horao, that's a command. We're commanded to be on the lookout. See that. Be careful. Be on the lookout. For what? What are we to be careful of? That we do not despise one of these little ones. That verb despise, kataphroneo, means to view someone with contempt. To look down upon someone or to consider someone inferior or worthless. And attached to this verb, you'll notice that little particle, not. Do not despise. Meh. Now that negative particle there is unique because it's joined to the, a specific verb which in the Greek is a subjunctive verb. What that means is this. The prohibition about not despising is intensified. Okay? You can't have a stronger command than the one we have here. Because all of us are God's little children, we must be on the lookout. We must be careful not to look down upon one another and not to treat one another as inferior or worthless. Now, who was this prohibition initially given to? Peter and the other 11 disciples. Listen, they had just been arguing over who was the greatest in God's kingdom. Peter, James, and John, proudly boasting upon their return of having seen Moses and Elijah and the glorified Christ in the transfiguration. Their boasting caused the other nine to be jealous and envious and resentful. So they weren't humble. They tempted others to sin. But my friends, they were not only guilty of causing others, the others to sin, but in their proud boasting, they venerated themselves and ultimately displayed contempt for the other nine. Peter, James, and John witnessed the transfiguration, but remember, while that was happening, the other nine could not cast a demon out of a child. And without a doubt, Peter, James, and John not only looked down on the others, but considered them to be inferior, to be worthless, because of their inability to perform that miracle. You say, well, how do you know that's how they felt? The fact that Jesus addressed the issue of not despising one another, or not having contempt for one another, proves they were guilty of that sin. Remember, he's addressing their question, their argument, their sin. And while he was initially speaking to the twelve, friends, this prohibition is very much for you and me today. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3-4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. 
with all humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let me ask you, friends, how many of you operate out of selfishness? Now, before you say, well, no, not me. Listen, if you are unwilling to be inconvenienced for the cause of Christ, you're selfish. If you're unwilling to minister to another believer, you're selfish. Now, how many of us are driven by conceit? Well, not me. Well, wait a minute. Have you ever thought everything has to be done your way? That's conceit. And if you've thought that way, you're guilty. How often have you put the wants and needs of others above your own? Oh, not too often. Well, my friends, if you don't put the needs and wants of others above your own, guess what? You're guilty of this sin, of despising one another. How many of you, my friends, are only interested in what serves and meets your wants? I mean, if we were honest, we'd have to say all of us because that's our natural, in, our, our natural draw, our natural desire, okay? Is to take care of number one. In what other ways might we be guilty of showing contempt or def- despising or treating another believer as inferior or worthless? Well, let me throw some at you here. You might be guilty of contempt if you've used your Christian liberty to cause another believer to do something against their conscience. If you've abused your Christian liberty, you have despised, shown contempt, or treated another believer as inferior or worthless. Paul warns in Romans 14.3, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. You know, your fellow believer has, has a particular... Uh, conviction, okay, that you don't agree with, so what? Okay. You don't have contempt for them, Paul says. Yeah, but the Bible says, I understand that. But this is where they're at in their spiritual walk. Second Peter 2.16 says, when you look down at another believer over an issue of conscience, you're using your freedom as a covering for sin. In other words, you're using your freedom, your liberty in Christ to show contempt for them. Here's another area. We could be guilty of contempt, of despising our fellow believer by showing favoritism. Not in the church. That's never happened, right? Listen, James 2, 1 and 4 says, Brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, friend, you are not to regard or show honor to, for one believer over another because of prosperity, their position, their power, or their partnership. When we show personal favoritism over one belief, to one believer over another, we've shown contempt. We have, shown, we, have, we have despised someone. We have treated that person as inferior or worthless. Listen, we are also guilty of contempt if we have withheld help to a believer in need. We're guilty of contempt if we've withheld help from a believer in need. Corinthian church struggled in this area. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty to 22 When you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise? Do you have contempt? For the church of God. And shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? 
In this I will not praise you. All right? Listen, they, they were feeding themselves, but they could care less for the people who had nothing. Facing a similar situation, Pastor James admonishes his readers in James 2, 15 to 16, saying, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and you go and say to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? How about 1 John 3, 17? The Apostle John asks, Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in such a one? How can you say God's love abides in you if you're not coming up and meeting the need of a fellow believer who's struggling? So anytime there's a believer struggling and we do nothing, guess what? We're guilty of despising them. We're also guilty of contempt when we mock other believers for physical or mental defects or cultural differences. I'll repeat that again. Some of you give me some dirty looks. I might be stepping on some toes. We're guilty of contempt when we mock other believers for physical or mental defects or cultural differences. Listen, the Apostle Paul himself experienced this kind of contempt. He says in 2 Corinthians 10.10, They say, my letters are weighty and strong, but my personal presence is unimpressive and my speech is contemptible. They had no problem. These believers had no problem with Paul's teaching. But they took issue with his physical appearance and speech. What was the problem? Come across this the other day. Nicephorus, an ancient writer, actually paints a description of what the Apostle Paul looked like. He was a little man, crooked and bent over like a bow. He had a pale countenance, long and wrinkled, a bald head, but eyes full of fire and benevolence. His beard was long and thick and interspersed with gray hair, as was his head. So he obviously was sickly looking. He was stooped over. He was short. He was bald. They mocked him for it. They jested about him. On the other hand, he commended the Galatian believers for not mocking his physical appearance. In Galatians 14, 4.14, rather, he says, And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. Listen, I know I'm nothing to look at, Paul says. And I appreciate the fact that you didn't mock me for how I look. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now, doesn't that go back to exactly what Jesus says? How we treat other believers is, that, is we're doing, what we do to them is if we're doing it to Jesus himself. So these other quote-unquote believers who mocked Paul for his physical appearance, for his speech and such, listen, they were ultimately mocking Jesus. They were having contempt for Jesus, whereas the Galatian believers did not. Does that describe any of you? Listen, we are guilty of contempt if we're indifferent to a believer who is sinning. We're guilty of despising them if we are indifferent to their sin. Well, what, what do you mean by that indifferent? Well, on the one hand, indifference to someone sinning may simply be to ignore their sin. Tag like nothing's wrong. On the other hand, indifference can be displayed by distancing ourselves from the sinning brother or sister. And both attitudes are wrong. Acting like there is nothing wrong or at the other side going, going out of your way to avoid them are wrong. Contrary to Scripture. 
Paul says, he admonishes us in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burden. What burden? The burden of sin. Bear one another's burden and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Are we guilty of being indifferent to a believer's sin? Believers, we're guilty of contempt if we resent another believer who confronts us in our sin. Now, let's be honest, none of us want to be confronted by our sin. Our natural reaction when we get confronted is to become defensive, to shift the blame, to find fault with the other person, and even retaliate. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 16, 10 to 11. Paul sends Timothy to the church at Corinth to correct their sinful behaviors, and he warns the Corinthians, if Timothy comes, see that he is, is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Let no one despise him. Do not hold him in contempt for confronting you about your sin. Leaving Titus in Crete for a similar reason, Paul tells him in Titus 2.15, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one despise you. So friends, if you've ever caused someone to violate their conscience, if you've ever showed favoritism, if you've ever withheld help from someone in need, if you've mocked someone for their defects or differences, if you've been indifferent towards someone sinning, or you resented another believer, you are guilty of despising them. You are guilty of showing contempt for your fellow believer. And each and every one of us ought to examine ourselves and consider whether or not we're guilty of treating another believer in an inferior or worthless manner. Remember his previous admonition in Matthew 18, 5? Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. How you and I treat each other is how we would treat Jesus. Are we treating one another as worthless? Are we treating each other as inferior? If so, we're treating Jesus the same. Now notice here that Jesus provides the reason for this command not to despise God's children. Notice what he says in verse 10. I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Notice the phrase there, I say to you. That establishes Jesus' authority. It underscores the importance of what he is about to say. We are not to despise one another. Why? Because of their angels. What is meant by their angels? The term their angels, or their rather, the pronoun there, refers strictly to God's children. You and I as believers are God's children. And so these angels are ours. These angels are in heaven, implying they are what? Holy. Additionally, they continually seek the face of my Father. That is, they're always looking to God, awaiting instruction. And remarkably... The instruction that they are awaiting is instructions concerning us as God's children. These are guardian angels. Belief in guardian angels was prominent in Jewish culture and with the statement, I say to you, Jesus authorizes a belief in guardian angels. Listen to Hebrews 1.14. 
all ministering spirits, all angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Ministering. Liturgious. In other words, these angels do work in service to a deity. These angels serve God to who? For those who will inherit salvation. This ministry involves caring or guarding believers. And regarding this guardianship ministry, listen to the words of Psalm 91.11. He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. When Daniel survived a night in the lion's den, he reports in Daniel 6.22, God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Now understand that guardian angels do not keep us from all forms of evil. But they, rather, they, their purpose is to allow nothing to happen to us outside of God's will. Listen, they didn't keep Daniel out of the lion's den, but they kept him being destroyed in the lion's den. The fact that God dispatches holy angels to guard and protect us, His children, should affirm how precious each and every one of us are to our Heavenly Father. Furthermore, when we despise a fellow believer, a fellow child of God, when we treat them evilly, when we set them below us as inferior or worthless, when we mock them, malign them, or harm them in any way, we are setting ourselves against the angels God has dispatched to protect them. How grievous is it to treat one of God's children with contempt or as inferior or worthless? Listen, this is how grievous it is. When we despise one of God's little ones, we have made ourselves enemies of God's angels. How many believers, perhaps even some of us in this room, have been afflicted by an angel because we disobeyed Jesus and despised one of his little ones? Listen, if their job is to guard and protect, then regardless if it's another believer or not attacking them, they're coming after you. God's children are not to be despised. Now that brings us to verses 11 to 14. Verses 11 to 14. God's children are to be pursued. In Matthew 18, 11 to 14, Jesus explains that we are to pursue God's children. Let's begin with verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now immediately, if, depending on the translation you're using, you may notice that verse 11 is set in brackets. Now let me just address the, that issue very briefly. Textual criticism is the science of weighing manuscripts to determine their authenticity. Okay? Uh, uh, often manuscripts are uh, given more weight if they're older than Later manuscripts. And basically the brackets here in verse uh, 11 are because verse 11 is not found in earlier dated manuscripts. But I want to say this. The brackets do not imply something nefarious. Okay? There's nothing nefarious going on. It simply lets you know, listen, in some manuscripts this isn't there. 
Okay. Now again, approaching the scripture from a textual perspective, I want to make sure that the scripture I'm reading is actually God's word. And if something's been added to God's word, I want to make sure that it shouldn't be there, right? Just as much as I don't want anything taken away from God's word. Okay. Understand there are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Okay. New Testament manuscripts. Most, the majority of them are fragments. Pieces. Pieces. Some, a few, are almost complete, but not completely complete. There's sections missing out of those. And so what our responsibility as, uh, as textual critics, we sit there and we gather all the manuscripts together, we weigh them, we, we test them, we, okay, to determine, okay, we need to put together what the, what the New Testament looked like. Nobody has it on a shelf anywhere in the world a complete New Testament from 1 AD. Okay, well, for, from 99 AD, okay? It wasn't written in 1 AD. It, there, there's none available. So we have a responsibility to put all this together. Now, follow with me. An omission is going to be common when you're dealing with fragments of manuscripts. The omission could be something lost to time. It could be a scribal error. These are handwritten and copied. And without an editorial team checking the copyist's work, it can happen. I mean, think about when you write or I write. Listen, I know when I write things, I can read it as many times as I want. I can have two or three other people write it. What amazes me, two or three other people come back to me and they all find mistakes. And they don't all find the same mistake. <laughs> okay? Mistakes happen. So we have to ask ourselves, does Matthew 18 11 belong in the text? Could it be there by copyist error? Is it possible that it was added? Well, let's see what the Scripture says. We do know the verse is also found in Luke 19.10. If the copyist is copying from memory, it's possible that he inserted it from Luke 19.10. Similar setting, similar material. Okay, it could have been added. That's possible. We do know that, again, there's plenty of evidence that it does exist in Luke 19. If the verse, doesn't, if the verse was not in the original text... Does that change any doctrine? No. If verse 11 is not in the original text, no doctrine is changed. Well, how can you say that, Pastor? Because the verse is in Luke 19.10. It's still in the Scripture. Now, that being said, there is plenty, there is broad manuscript support for its inclusion. Okay, Personally, I believe it should be there. I believe there's enough evidence, textual evidence, to say it should be there. But I wanted to answer the question, uh, why the brackets are there. Okay? They're not there to make you doubt or question the Scripture, just to give you a, an honest evaluation of what the manuscript evidence says. So let's look at verse 11. Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, in Luke 19.10, in the context where he says that, he's answering why he is eating with a nefarious sinner like Zachari or Zacchaeus. You know the wee little guy? Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. In other words, Jesus, if he's going to save sinners, he's got to spend some time with sinners in order to save them. Because sinners don't seek Jesus, Jesus seeks them. But understand that in the context of Luke 19.10, the lost, when he says he came to seek and save the lost, he's talking about the spiritually dead like Zacchaeus. But the context in Matthew 18 is different, isn't it? He's not talking about unregenerate people in Luke 18, is he? Who's Jesus preaching to in Luke 18? The disciples, the believers. 
He's addressing their argument over greatness. He's addressing their pride, their envy, their jealousy, their resentment. He's addressing them and how their sin is affecting one another. And so the lost, here in Matthew 18 and verse 11, are not unbelievers. He came not only to seek and to save unbelievers, but He came to seek and to save believers. You see, what the inclusion of verse 11 means is this. Jesus not only seeks to save in a redemptive sense, the unregenerate, but He also seeks to save in a sanctifying sense, believers lost in sin. Remember, we're told previously, don't tempt, don't entice your fellow believer to sin. Now we're going to be exhorted to pursue our fellow believer who is in sin. Don't despise the sinning believer, but rather pursue them. And Jesus says, what do you think? I ask you, what do you think about that? Listen, that's a typical rabbinic tool. Jesus was challenging their thinking. He wanted, this is a new concept and I want you to think over it. I want, to th- I want you to think about your responsibility to pursue God's children who are lost in sin. And so he gives us a parable, the lost sheep parable. Now again, very common scene in the first century A.D., Shepherding was the chief occupation in ancient Israel. Moses, David, Amos were all shepherds. The prophets depicted God's people as sheep and God as a good shepherd. Interestingly enough, the religious leaders as wicked shepherds. Ezekiel 34. And so Jesus begins by saying, If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one who is straying? Now let's have a few facts here. Let's fact check this parable. A hundred sheep, that is the average size of a flock in Israel, okay? Nothing unusual there. The mountains or the hillsides were the common grazing area. Nothing out of the ordinary there. Sheep, of course, have a natural predilection for wandering. They're dumb. And when a sheep strays, the shepherd does leave the rest of the flock to search for the one. And he will travail mountainous terrain and does not rest until the lost sheep is found. Again, let me make it clear, this parable of the lost sheep is not about pursuing or evangelizing the unregenerate, although evangelism is very important, and there are plenty of scripture verses about that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The shepherd here represents God the Father, but also it's representative of how you and I should be. And the sheep are us, God's children. In the New New Testament parabolic literature, any time you're in the New Testament Gospels and you come across a sheep, an illustration of sheep, it's always representative of God's children, of believers. Sheep are never unbelievers, okay, generally speaking. So the verb straying, let's deal with the verb straying here, planao, same word for star, means to wander or to err. So the straying or erring sheep represents one of God's children who fall into sin or one of God's children who depart from righteous living. Do believers fall into sin? Yes. Can believers depart from righteous living? Yes. But again, it's not about evangelism here. The point of the parable is about you and I pursuing the believer who has wandered. Look at Matthew eighteen fifteen. Next verse says, If your brother sins... He's applying the parable in verse 15. Your brother, your fellow believer, the fellow child of God, if he sins, what are you to do? Pursue him. 
Now, before we move any further, we're going to pause. If it turns out that he finds it, that is probably the saddest statement in all of Matthew 18. If it turns out that he finds it. The if there is a third class conditional clause. If he finds it. In other words, it's uncertain that he will. It's possible, but it's also uncertain. What does that mean? It means that the outcome of the shepherd's search is not guaranteed. Some strange sheep will be found, but others will remain lost. That is, some will be rescued from their sins and restored, but others will go on in their sin and ultimately perish. How is that possible? How is it possible that some sheep will not be found? The answer is in humanity's free will. You understand here that some who profess faith, some who present themselves as sheep or believers, will of their own choosing hide from God. Remember the rocky soil? Remember the thorny soil? They appeared as a moment in time, but when things got tough, when indifference set in, guess what? They departed from the gospel. And that's what you have here. These sheep that are not found are not found because the shepherd failed. They're not found because the sheep chose not to be found. They're like the older brother in the prodigal son parable. Their hearts are spiritually hardened. I can't wait to get to that parable sometime. Everybody gets on the prodigal son. I think you all need to turn around and look at the older brother. Because too many quote-unquote believers are just like the older brother. They're no more saved than the prodigal. But at least when the prodigal got saved, he continued to be dead in his trespass and sin. And his attitude towards the father displays it. That's another time. But understand here, the fact that some will not be found underscores God does not force anybody into His kingdom. So there are some people who will appear as a sheep. Remember, you got wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay, They'll wander, and if they're not found, it's not because God failed to find them. It's because they didn't want to be found because they were never truly a sheep to begin with. Now notice, upon finding the lost sheep, Jesus says, what does the shepherd do? He rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine. Boy, doesn't that prove to us that a sinning believer is no less valuable to the Father? He leaves the righteous sheep, the 99 righteous ones, to pursue the sinning one. How precious are his children to him. And he's more joyous over them. How is that? I want to give you a quick illustration here. A parent's joy when one of their children who is gravely ill recovers. They're joyous that that child has recovered. Are they any less joyous about their other children? No. But in that moment in time, because of the gravity of the situation, they're just rejoicing abundantly over that one child. And that's exactly what happens here. The shepherd rejoices over all the sheep, but in this moment, he's rejoicing more about this sheep because of all that he had to do to rescue and restore that lost sheep. There's three things you need to see here. Number one, God pursues his sinning children. He never waits for the lost sheep to return. Lost sheep don't return on their own volition, folks. They're lost. We need to follow his example and pursue the strain and sinning believer. Two, listen, just because there's many faithful doesn't provide us an excuse to ignore those who stray. Well, I can't worry about that one. Look at all these others. That's not God's way. God sets the 99 righteous here in the flock. Okay, you're fine. You're good. You stay there. I'm going after the one who is strained. And that's what we need to do. We're responsible to pursue those who are straying, those who are sinning. Three, when a sinning believer is found and repents, it's a cause for joy. That's what happens in heaven according to Luke 15, 7. The angels rejoice. Shouldn't there be more rejoicing amongst us on earth when a sinner is recovered 
There should be. But I think that so often is the case, instead because of our suspicious nature, rather than rejoicing when a believer is recovered and repents, we look at them with eyes of suspicion. And we question whether or not they're sincere. God rejoices. The angels rejoice. Shouldn't we rejoice as well? Finally, verse 14, Jesus answers why God searches for His sinning children. It's a Jewish idiom, common Jewish idiom here. It's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, one of my children, should perish. You know what that word perish there, apolumai, means? In the book of Matthew, it refers to eternal damnation. Fear him who is able to destroy the body and soul in the lake of fire. That word, that word uh, there, destroy, is the same word for perish. It means to go into the lake of fire. Isn't it a precious promise here that God will not allow any of his children to go into the lake of fire? He'll go out and he'll find them, he'll pursue them. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give to them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In God's infinite wisdom, he's decreed that none of us will continue in sin. The fact that he goes out and rescues us and brings us back means he doesn't leave us in our sin. There's no such thing in the New Testament of a believer living in a continual pattern of sin for years. It's not going to happen. Short time, yes. Long time, no. Why? God will go out and get them. Yes, we can fall into sin for a time, but God will find us and restore us to where we belong. Friend, every one of us is precious to God, so much so that He dispatches His angels to guard and protect us. And that ought to behoove us not to despise one another, not to treat one another as inferior or worthless. Let's pray to God for the empowerment to see His children His way. As well, let's follow God's example and let's pursue those believers who have strayed. Maybe they're engaging in known sin. Maybe they're struggling in their faithfulness to God. Maybe they've abandoned the fellowship of believers. Listen, whatever it may be, every child of God is essential and each and every one of us is responsible for pursuing and restoring them. How do we do that? How do we undertake the ministry of restoration? We'll see that next time in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and the value of discipline. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, as we come before you, we ask and pray, God, in the name of Jesus, that you'd have mercy on our souls. Forgive us, Father, because we're all guilty of despising another believer. We're all guilty of having contempt for someone of looking at them as worthless or inferior. Forgive us. I pray, Father, that you'd give us eyes to see them as you see them. Give us a heart, your heart, for them. That, Father, when one of those little ones might wander, we would pursue them until they're found. Father, give us that grace. Father, thank you for the grace. Any time that we have strayed, that you didn't just kick us to the side, but that you pursued us nonetheless. We thank and praise you for that. And so, Father, I ask that we would go forth guarding ourselves, being humble, keeping others from sin, but, Father, more so, give us a heart to pursue those who have struggled and are struggling in sin, those who are straying. Help us, Father, to rescue them before it's too late. I pray, Lord, that you be glorified in all we say and do. Amen.